This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, uh, good morning. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie. I am the senior pastor here. Now, you don't have to be a forensic investigator to notice that something has happened in the church calendar, right? Yes, it's Christmas time, but more specifically, it's Advent. And Advent's just a fancy word based on the Latin that means the coming or the arrival. So Christmas is the day that Christians celebrate that moment when the God of the universe came. He arrived in human form to be with his people. So as Christians, we believe that um, Jesus is king. He's king over everything. He's king over our lives and our stuff. But he is even king over time. time. And that's why we have seasons. And each season tells the story of God's reign. So presently, we are in the season where we engage our imagination and we remember that God came to us. Indeed, God is with us. Well, one of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, right? Now, I know that sounds simple, but the idea that God is with us is actually the storyline of the whole Bible, right? Um, let, let me explain real quickly. I got a lot to do in this intro. Is this a little bit hot? I'm a little, okay. Um, so back in the beginning, right, before there was any sin or brokenness in the world, God and man, they walked together in a garden, and, uh, there, and they did it with, there was vulnerability and intimacy. But then God, or excuse me, then man decided to divorce God, to put it that way, and become independent. Now, the concept of sin, and I know that's a really religious word, but sin is just every choice that we make apart from God's love, his counsel, his wisdom. It's when man functionally says, I want to be my own God. So man's sin was cast out of the garden. That's what we see in Genesis 3. But more important, that event represents a breach between God and man. We are estranged from God. But God loves us, and he doesn't want us to be independent. It's lonely and cold apart from God's warm presence. So God enters into a covenant, a new deep relationship with us, but this time it's a covenant of grace. God wants us to know him. God wants us in his family. God wants us to know his name. God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This is my covenantal name. My children know me by my name. He's, he's not a distant deity, right? And he looks at his people and he helps them to remember a time, right? To imagine a time when God and man walked together. And it was sweet. It was a time when man's heart burned in his chest with love and trust. And God says, I will have that again. I will be your God and you will be my people. And those words compose the storyline of the Bible. The Bible is a story of God's plan to recover that intimacy and that perfection. I will be your God, and you will be my people. 
This is uh, what theologians call the Emmanuel principle, right? God with us, marching by our side until his plan of perfect intimacy is fully restored. Now, of course, in the middle of history, Jesus is born, which is the single most dramatic disclosure of God's presence with us. That's why we call him Emmanuel. But the Emmanuel principle does not begin when Jesus was born. It's a continuation from the Old Testament. So during this Advent season, we're going to begin a four-week series that traces this idea through the Bible, that God is with us. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to pause and I want to tell you why we chose this sermon series. Our reasoning can be summed up like this. Although Christmas in Advent is celebrating God coming to his people, and although it's supposed to be the single most joyful time of the year, statistically speaking, we will be more depressed and more disappointed. We will drink more. We will gamble more. Increased pornography. We'll have more suicidal thoughts. And I'm, not, and I'm not talking about secular society. I'm talking about us, people who profess that God is with us. Now, why is there this disparity in our hearts? Why is it in my heart? Here's why. We have lost our imagination. Our imagination has given way to cynicism. Have you ever gone to um, an IMAX movie And just before the movie starts, there's that warning, right? And it says something like this. If you feel vertigo or sick, simply close your eyes, sit back, and the the feeling will subside. You know what I'm talking about? At Epcot Center in Disney, my favorite ride is this one called Soaring. And it uses IMAX technology while you sit in these seats hovering about, I don't know, maybe 10 feet or so. But it gives you the illusion that you're gently gliding uh, through the mountains of Tibet or over the Saharan desert. It's amazing. I mean, it's really spectacular. But all kinds of people get really, really sick, right? I mean, here's the thing, though. It's not real, y'all. Like, at all. I mean, it feels real. Your senses and your perceptions are deeply engaged, but it is not real. And ironically, and listen closely, The only way to stop feeling sick is to close your eyes, engage your imagination, and you've got to imagine that what you're seeing and what you're feeling is not real. Your imagination is the only way to get back into true reality. But that directly contradicts everything you're seeing and feeling, you see. The world of disappointment and consumerism, the one that we're living in, it's not real. It's a fake world. But it is engaging our senses so deeply. And the only way back into the real world is through our imagination. Listen, faith is confidence grounded in reality, but it requires your imagination. Listen, God is, an, is invisible, but he is with us. And that is more real. It is more real than what your senses are telling you. The world you perceive with your eyes will make you nauseous, and disappointed, 
and cynical. There is a battle for our imagination. It's the difference between faith and cynicism. And Advent is about God with us, Emmanuel. So let's, this morning and over this series, let's go on an adventure to recover our imagination into reality. This is the only way to recover joy during this Christmas season. So this morning, we're going to study the very end of Exodus 5 and a little bit of 6. And the Emmanuel principle will come through in three ways. One, as we imagine that God is better, as we imagine that we are in a bigger story, and as we imagine that we are free, right, that we're free. So with that, let's turn our attention to our text. In reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? Hear now the reading of God's word, and during the whole sermon, please stay with it, engage this text. We hope that this is satisfying, but really, we, we're not here to entertain you. We want to teach you God's word, so keep your Bibles open. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. May he bless it for you and me. You may be seated. Uh, now, our kids won't remember this movie but in 1991, Steven Spielberg made a film called Hook. The movie Hook is like a pseudo-sequel to the Peter Pan saga. It picks up with Peter, played by Robin Williams, who's now a man, right? Peter Banning is a man with a family. He's a workaholic. He has long forgotten Neverland. He has lost his imagination. But then Captain Hook, his old rival, kidnaps his children, and his search for them gets him back into Neverland. But when he arrives to Neverland, he's still not like quite himself, right? He reunites with all his old pals, uh, the Lost Boys, and right away there's this uh, terrific scene. All the Lost Boys are having this enormous banquet. They're all sitting at this long table, but 
as Peter watches them, it appears to him that they're all eating air, right? There's nothing on the table, nothing on their plates, and yet the lost boys are having a feast. Well, what was the problem? Peter forgot how to dream and how to imagine. His brain had been colonized by cynicism. But the moment he engages his imagination, it unlocked what was really true. And in the blink of an eye, he looks at the table again, and it is covered with the most colorful and choicest foods that one could dream up. And it was believing is what unlocked what was really true. See, the lost boys were eating real food the whole time. Now, if I could summarize how Exodus 6 works, it would be that God is preparing to wake up Israel's imagination to what is true. And the way he does it is by making them imagine that God is better. And this is my first point. Now, think about, you guys, the context with me. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. That's, about, that's almost twice as long as the United States of America has existed, all right? So Israel's imagination had been colonized by Egyptian beliefs. And life in Egypt was really oppressive. So God appears to Moses in the burning bush, you'll remember, and he charges them with the task of leading them out of captivity. And God gives them like these three signs to prove to his own people, to the Hebrews, that God, the one true God, is for them. So Moses performs these three signs for his own people. The people are absolutely pumped. I mean, it's amazing. They bow their head, they worship, and they start dreaming about being free. And then Moses takes his show on the road to Pharaoh's court. And what does he say? Let my people go. And how does, how does Pharaoh respond? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know your God. Now get back to work. Now at this point, Pharaoh doubles down. He makes Israel's work and their burdens even harder. Now think about you guys just how bad this looks. I mean, this is horrible press. Moses says to his people, God is on our side. Moses goes to Pharaoh and things get worse. And then the people say, I wish, Moses, you never came. We were, we were better off before God ever got involved. And this is important to understand, you guys. From their perspective, this is a contest between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel, Moses' is God. And it appears that the, God of, the gods of Egypt have the upper hand. And in fact, in no way can they imagine how the God of Moses is better. They can't even dream it up. So this text is going to teach them how to imagine that God is better. And he does it in two ways. The first way that God is better is that he's not touchy or vindictive. God is not touchy or vindictive. Listen, Moses is living between the promise of being liberated and the actual completion of that promise. And it's hard, okay? And Moses' emotions are complex, right? Look there at chapter 5, verse 22. Moses says, God, why have you done this evil to this people? Verse 23, since I came to Pharaoh, which is like code speak, doing what you told me to do, God, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people. That is gut-wrenchingly honest and gritty, right? 
Now, before you guys get all self-righteous and say, Moses just needs faith, right? Don't do that. I want you to notice that at no point in this passage does the text record that God reprimands Moses. He doesn't. Why? Because God knows that Moses is living between the promise and the fulfillment. And it's hard. It's hard. See, an, an Egyptian would never feel enough trust with their gods to speak like this, but Moses does. It is liberating to bring your complaint to the Lord. In fact, did you know that so many Psalms in the Old Testament teach the people of God how to redemptively complain? Why? Because that is evidence of true intimacy with the one true God. This story, with the complaining, explodes the imagination of the Israelites. And it should for you too. It should for you too. Listen, when a mother has to bury her one-year-old child because of a rare disease, what do you tell her? You don't. You don't say anything. You just weep. And if she, in her anguish, complains, and it's not all theologically correct, you just weep with her, right? Because life between the promise and the fulfillment is hard and messy, and our complaining does not dethrone God. He's not touchy. He knows that things are complex. We can redemptively complain. God isn't vindictive. Imagine that. God is better. Now, there's a second way that this story shows that he's better. He doesn't just receive our complaints, but he acts exactly the way that we need. Now, listen, God didn't owe Moses a response, but look what he does in verse 1 of chapter 6. Look what he does. He says, the Lord says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. Now, those words are the preamble for the 10 plagues. That's what most people associate with. They're going to start in chapter 7 in the book of Exodus. And we're not going to study all of those plagues, but let me tell you how they work. Listen, this is God we're talking about. He could have sneezed and fixed everything, right? God's that powerful. But God chose 10 plagues that very specifically deconstruct the gods of Egypt. See, remember, this is a battle for their imagination. So each plague represents one of the major gods of Egypt. So, for example, the Nile River is a god and the life source of Egypt, right? That god died at the hands of Moses when he turned it to blood. It bled. Their god bled, right? Frogs. Y'all remember the plague with the frogs, right? The frogs it represents the goddess Het Het. She's always pictured with a frog face or frog head, right? She's the goddess of fertility. When you have frogs everywhere, and I mean everywhere, in your bed, ain't much fertility going on, right? That god is dead. The sun god, the sun god, Ra, he was powerful until Moses killed him too and the world went dark for three days right? See, these plagues were God's process of deconstructing Israel's imagination. Because after this, those gods who formerly colonized Israel's imagination, they were no longer attractive. The only one who remains is the one true God, the Lord. See, God is better. 
And this ancient passage is supposed to teach us to imagine that he's better too, right? We need this. Listen, you guys, we need this for our modern age. Secularism, if you can think about it like that, is the product of our culture's collective imagination. Due to a host of factors, unbelief in the one true God is made more attractive. Trusting God feels unimaginable. The gods of self-realization, the gods of wealth, the gods of of, of security, they're all demanding our worship, and presently, they seem better than our God. The fiction of those gods seem more real. So what do we do? Well, instead of closing your eyes and sitting back until the nausea passes, try this. How about open your eyes? Lift your eyes up to the Lord. Worship him. Sing to him. Obey him. In fact, make choices in your life that align with the reality of your faith. Because here's what will happen. Here's why this matters. When bad things happen to you, like that mother who lost her baby to a rare disease, and if you complain on that day to your gods of self-realization, wealth, and your god of security, your complaint will fall on deaf ears. Your gods won't hear you or care because they're not real. But our Lord will. will. Can you imagine that? Our God is better. This text invites you to see God is better. But it also does a second thing. It invites us to see that we are in a bigger story. This is my second point. I have a dear friend from seminary where I studied in St. Louis when he was in seventh grade, he was outside of his neighborhood playing with his buddies. There was this old bridge that passed over this dried up creek. And the bridge was not enormous. It only stood maybe 10 or 15 feet uh, above the ground. But in a moment of youthful ignorance, uh, my buddy, he jumped off the bridge and he locked his knees when he landed. And the, 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 the fall so severely damaged his lower spine that he would never walk again. To this day, he's still, he's still in a wheelchair. Now, I want to be absolutely clear. This was devastating, and it continues to be complex emotionally. But this isn't just about his legs, you guys. This is about his dreams and his longings. These kinds of accidents are painful enough to lead people into irrecoverable depression and despair. See, Christians, we love, we love to recite verses like Romans 8.28, right? We know that God is working all things together for my good, right? We, we, we know that, that God's doing that. I don't know, just to recite that feels good. We want to drink coffee from a mug that has that verse plastered to it, right? But we only drink coffee from that mug with that verse when things are going according to plan, Did my friend's mother take out her Romans 828 mug the next morning after the accident? Here's the answer. Through bitter tears, the answer is yes. She absolutely did. See, when that accident happened, was that the end of the story? My friend and his mother had to awaken their imagination that this life is not about them. 
They are really important players, but they're not the main actor. And the story, and the story started way before the accident, and it continues well into both of their future. God was at work way before this mess ever happened, right? And my friend will tell you that when his imagination is locked into believing this bigger story, those are the moments that he has the most courage. That is exactly how God awakens the imagination of Moses in this story. See, when God addresses Moses, notice what he says. Read with me there in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then skip to verse 4. He says, I also established a covenant with them to give them the land. Now, just think about that for just a second. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for almost 500 years. Moses doesn't know them, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked around the promised land as pilgrims. So why is God citing them? It's because God wants Moses to know that the story does not begin with Moses' bad day. The pain of Moses is in the context of a bigger story. The pain of Moses has a context, and, and none of his pain, none of it will be wasted. There are no wasted tears for God. And I want, I want you to know that. I want you to believe that. And not only does God refer to this bigger story by looking backwards, but then look what he does. He also looks forward. Look there, starting in verse 6. He begins by saying, I am the Lord. And then God gives these seven, count them, seven I will statements. Look there in your text, verse 6, it starts, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you as a possession. And then in verse 8, he closes the way that he began. I am the Lord. You see that kind of bookends? The seven I will statements can be summarized in, in sort of three categories. Let me do this for you. The first one is liberation. God will liberate you from slavery. You can be free from the power of sin. And then the second theme, redemption. I will redeem you, right? This is a, this is, that's kind of a, a financial term. This is the act of paying a ransom to free a slave. And so you will be free from the penalty of sin, not just the power, but the penalty of sin. And then the third category is adoption. I will be your God. You'll be my family. I am God with you. I will give you a home. One day we'll be together again forever. Perfect intimacy. You'll be free then from the presence of sin. God is directing their eyes forward. Why does God do this? He looks backward and he says, my story started way before you. He looks forward and he says, the story is going somewhere, Moses, and the story includes you, but it's much bigger than you. Listen, church, listen, if you can't imagine, if you can't imagine a bigger story, then you are one tragedy or one sin away from being unraveled by irrecoverable depression. Listen, the gods of Egypt were capricious, and it made their followers feel like life was no bigger than the moment they were living. And it was anxious. 
Can I dare suggest that our society's modern gods are the same? It's hard for us to imagine or interpret our lives in any transcendent or bigger way, right? YOLO, what's that? You only live once. Eat, drink, be married, for tomorrow we die. Your life is defined by the right now. And if your right now is marked with suffering, then your life's a waste. Our culture cannot imagine any good reason for suffering or self-denial. And that's how come we are more depressed and more drugged up than at any other point in human history. We need meaning in our lives, but the gods of our secular culture are silent. They give us no meaning or purpose or interpretation for our pain. There's no narrative bigger than your pain. And I'm, and I'm saying this not as a sort of a self-righteous judge of culture. I'm saying this kind of filled with compassion for our culture. Like I want something for our culture. One time I was a part of this um, team building exercise where everyone was asked, if you could live in any moment in history, what would it be? And so some people said, hey, you know, the 1940s, so I could um, help the Allied forces fight against the Nazis and try to prevent like an Auschwitz or something like that. Others said, well, I would like to be alive in the 60s, to be a part of the civil rights movement, to join Martin Luther King. Um, they, everything that was said were all kind of like cool, momentous times in history. But guess what no one said during this exercise? No one said, 1988, so that I could go to a Debbie Gibson electric youth concert. Listen, Debbie's cool, but she came and went, and most of you all don't even know who I'm talking about. Why? Because there's no transcendent meaning in that. We all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. When a person is suffering or has experienced tragedy, the single worst thing you can say to them is that your suffering means nothing. Many of you probably know the story of Jim Elliott, who was, he was killed alongside four other missionaries uh, to the Watani uh, natives in Ecuador. The Watanis were known for being a violent tribe. And before he left, his wife, Betty Elliott, asked him, he said, if the natives attack you, will you use your guns? And he said, no. And then he says, Listen, we are ready for heaven. They are not. I would much rather that we die than them. And they did, y'all. And they did. And, and Betty Elliott thought about that conversation that she has with her husband before he left on this trip. She thought about it over and over again in the wake of Jim's death, and it comforted her. It did not take away the pain. It didn't. But it gives the pain some weight. It gives it some meaning. And so Betty Elliott was able to understand her grief in the context of a bigger story, right? How about you? Can you imagine that, a bigger story that interprets the sad things in your life? That's how this text works in our heart, a bigger story. All right, so far we looked at how the story engages our imagination so that we can imagine that God is better, 
and then imagine that we are in a bigger story. Let me just conclude on our final point, because we must also imagine that we are free. Now, at, at no point in our text this morning is it more evident that the Hebrews, that Israel's imagination was colonized by the false gods of Egypt then in verse 9. Look there, it says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now you and I, our text ends here, but we know how this story ends, right? What does God do? He goes, uh-oh, hold my hot chocolate. Ten plagues later, Israel's on their way into the promised land with, you know, Egypt's gold in their pocket, right? We know how that story ends, but what worries me, what concerns me as your pastor, is that your story and my story might actually just end with a broken spirit and harsh slavery. I'm afraid that your imagination can never get on board with what is really true. Your lack of imagination, your broken spirit, is because your false gods have so abused you that you would rather accept the oppressor than recognize the deliverer. Does anyone know what the Stockholm Syndrome is? This is what Wikipedia says. Wikipedia says that it is a condition that causes hostages to develop a psychological alliance with their captors during captivity. Right, y'all get that? Dare I say that we have stopped engaging our imagination and our dreams are only as big as our oppressors. And we kind of like our oppressors. We trust them more than we trust the Lord. Who cares if they crush you and they beat you down and they demand more and more of you? Because you oddly like it. At least their oppression is familiar. And so you resign to take their oppression instead of imagining that you can be free. You can't imagine rescue or freedom. Because our imagination has been colonized by our secular gods, it is so small and limited. And so when you close your eyes, the only thing you see is the last session of pornography. Or when you close your eyes, the only thing, the only thing you see is the last meal that you purged because you want to keep your body skinny. Or when you close your eyes, the only thing you see is the money that you recklessly gambled away. Or the only thing you hear are the harsh words that you had against your spouse or your children. Listen, I'm not saying these things to judge you or to make you feel bad. It's that I want you to be free. I want you to be free from this spiritual Stockholm syndrome that makes you feel loyal to your captor. But the only way you will be free is by imagining that you are absolutely significant to God. I mean, think about this for, with me for just a second. Imagine the Milky Way, right? If you could take the entire galaxy and imagine it and scale it to the size of North America, all right? Are you following me so far? And, and, and if you could do that, the astrophysicists would tell you that our solar system in this galaxy, our solar system, just the planets around our sun, would be the size of a coffee cup. 
sitting in the middle of North America, all right? And if our solar system is a coffee cup in the middle of North America, which is also surrounded by billions of other continents, then our planet is just a dot on that coffee mug. And do you know what that makes us? Less than a speck of dust on that dot. Listen to me, though. Advent and Christmas is the time when our hearts should be filled with wonder. Don't we love the wonder in our children's imagination during the season? That that's what God wants for us. This is the season when we rehearse the truth that the almighty, infinitely big God, maker of the entire universe, he became really, really small. And he joined us and he became that speck of dust on the dot of the coffee mug. Why? So that you would know that God is with us, Emmanuel. So that you would know that you're absolutely significant. You're worth it. Can you imagine that? How freeing would that be? I know that God is invisible. And I know that our sins and our idols and our temptations are very visible. I know that they are the IMAX screen. Close your eyes, though. Imagine, cage your imagination so that you can see reality. God's invisibility is not a net loss. It is a net gain. He is so grand and beautiful that dreaming and imagining are the only ways to perceive him. The five senses are not equipped to take in such beauty. Only our imagination can get us close. May the wonder of his infinite love and presence awaken our imagination this Advent season. Amen? Amen.